In first Peter, we've been looking at this letter that he wrote to many people who were undergoing suffering at the time. They're being persecuted. They, I mean, it was just a really hard time in the life of the church uh, in this area. And so Peter is writing them, trying to encourage them. And a lot of the things that he says are here are the things that are precious to faith. Uh, first of all, he talked about our precious faith, that it's something given by God and that the trials that we go through help us to remember that uh, our faith is true. He actually has started something in our life, but also the trials that he gives us continue to grow our faith that we would trust him more each and every day in the face of trials. And then we saw last week how what was precious was just that blood of Jesus. There's nothing else like it. Nothing else can pay for our sin. There's nothing that we can do. There's no religion that we could come up with that's precious like that. We didn't pay for it with gold or silver. It was just the precious blood of Jesus that paid for our sin. We're fully dependent upon it. And so we've talked about what's precious. We talked last week that precious, precious isn't just something kind of like, oh, that's precious. Just something kind of cute. Uh, precious, what it means is something of more value. And, and let me give you an illustration of things of more value. This week, um, uh, a car rode down our road and I'd gone into a back bedroom to look at the car because I thought it was actually um, uh, 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 some uh, neighbor girls being dropped off by a grandma or something. So when I went to go look at that car, I noticed it had pulled up in front of a, a, another neighbor. And by the time I was looking, there was a couple guys in, in, in masks that were running off of the porch of one of our neighbors with a bunch of boxes. They jumped into the car, and as fast as I could, I whipped out my phone, and I was taking pictures of the car as it speeds away. And so I and others who had been uh, witnesses to other thefts that very same day of this same group all put the information into the police and the pictures and the all the descriptions. And so uh, the police were after these guys and they, they caught them. They caught them. And it was it was really great. But it was interesting to note um, what they had taken. And so my neighbor, I was talking to them and they said, you know, from us, it was one hundred twenty dollars worth of stuff. But most of it was diapers. <laughs> they they took off with diapers and they said they also had a um, some type of 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 women of faith water bottle and for some reason they kept that they thought that was valuable but the diapers they ditched somewhere uh those diapers so there was that it was it had value but then on another porch where they had stolen things there was over ten thousand dollars of medical medical equipment that was of more value then the diapers were good. You need those when you have kids. And if you've had kids, you're like, those, those are of value. But the medical equipment proved to be more precious. And that's what I mean by that precious, is that we look at things and evaluate what is of the most value. And Peter is saying, here are the things that are of most value. Your faith that God has given you, the precious blood that Jesus has given you, and what you don't want to go into because these things are not valuable is religiousness. Works that you would do to try to help yourself or earn your salvation when God is the one who can do that. Now, I know for some that's been a little bit of rawness because you're like, maybe you're, I'm hitting on things that, that you hold dear. Um, last week we talked about just the, the going to church or the saying of prayers. But some of you can come back at me and, and say, you know, Pastor, you, you have that book a lot up there. And what about just reading the Bible? Doesn't that in its own way have its own religiousness and yes, it often does. And so we're going to tackle that today because the next thing we're going into that's precious is the word of God itself and how that sometimes can be made into a very religious thing. But that doesn't strip it of being precious. We just need to see it for what it is and love it for what it is and ask God to give it to us for what it is. So let's take a look at that this morning. We're in first Peter, chapter one. 
Verse 22 is where we're picking up this morning. It says this. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, reading that right away, it might seem like that we are doing something that we've purified our souls. That's not what it's talking about. It says because because of your obedience to the truth. God, as we already saw, he has done this work. He's given Jesus. He was the one who, by his grace, was calling us into salvation. It was his work. The scriptures make clear it is all God's works that save us. So what is that obedience talking to? Imagine it like this. You're in a a, a building that's burning up. There's no way you can rescue yourself. You're in the middle of it. And suddenly a, a, a big firefighter comes in. Maybe it's Ryan Parker or one of those firefighters that you know and love. And this firefighter comes in. You're there. There's nothing that you can do. You're completely helpless. You're going to die. And the firefighter says this. Look. There is a fire. I know exactly where it's dangerous. I know the way out. I have protection in the midst of that. And I have the strength to get you out of here. Get on my back. I'm going to carry you to safety. Now, that was the truth. You who are perishing, what do you do? You obey that truth. In that moment when everything is falling in on you, really the obedience to that truth is they told you what was necessary to be saved and you said, okay. And you jump on the back and they carry you to safety. That's the obedience to truth that it's talking about in that scripture. That when the truth of Jesus, the gospel came, God opened up your heart for you, caused you to understand that truth. And all you did was submit and say, okay, save me. That's it. And so that's the obedience to to the truth that has now purified your souls. It wasn't you purifying your souls. It was God who has done that. You responded to that truth. And now as a result, things are going to play out in your life. You should have this brotherly love that goes on towards one another. We're going to talk more about that in chapter two as he begins to display what that brotherly love looks like. But I have another topic I need to hit on right here real fast. For some of you, when you were reading this passage in your Bible, you read And it went something like this. By obedience through the spirit. Did you read that? Raise your hand if you had that. You who are raising your hands, if you read that in your Bible, it's because you have the King James Bible. And we need to take a a brief moment to talk about the King James Bible. Um, Because we've been needing to talk about translations for a time. And here's a good here's a good point to put it in. I want to talk a little bit about translations and where we get the Bibles that we're holding in our hands and where the Bible came from. So a long, 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 long time ago, there were writers such as Peter who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what it's described at in Second Peter. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit, not making these things up. But prophetically, they were given things to write down. Those original things that they wrote when they wrote those letters, those are called the autographs. Those are the originals. Now, in all of our study and all that we're doing, our attempts are trying to get back to those originals and to find out exactly what Peter wrote, because what Peter wrote and what Moses wrote and what what Luke wrote and these other authors, when they were written to the audience they were giving them to, they were without error. They were absolutely perfect in the way that the Holy Spirit guided them to write. We call that inerrancy. And so they were without error and they wrote those. And so some of us would say, well, if we want to know exactly what that was, why don't we just go get the originals? And the reality is, we don't have the originals. They are ancient 
texts, the ones that were written, are um, almost 2,000 years old, those originals. And the Old Testament's even further back there. And like old documents, they just don't have it. That's not just true for our scriptures. That's true for any ancient documents. So if you're talking about Plato or Homer when he's writing, they don't have any of those originals. But what they do have is back in that day, they didn't have printing presses. They didn't have photocopiers. What they had were scribes. They had people who would copy it. And so you had the originals. And at some point, there was somebody who said, let me make a copy of that. So they'd sit down and they would write. They would scribe it. Those copies that they made were called manuscripts. And so we don't have the originals, but we have all these manuscripts that we get from those originals. And so in the literary world, there's actually a scientific thing that they do. It's called literary criticism. And what it is, is not just the Bible, but all ancient literature. They're trying to find out how accurate are the manuscripts to what the original was. And how do you do that if you don't have the original? Well, they actually have some tests and some standards that they use for all the literature. And the, the, the guidelines are basically this. How many years from when the original was written to when the nearest manuscripts were written? So you're trying to find out how many years have passed between when Peter wrote and when we have the actual first manuscripts that we can get our eyes on that we have. And that, that again, goes for all literature. This isn't just the Bible. And then they want to know, well, how many manuscripts we have. So if there's the original and then we, is there a whole lot of manuscripts? And then they look at all those manuscripts and see how many variations are between them. So, for instance, like if, if you've had a recipe in your family, you ever had this, somebody's giving you a recipe and you get it and you write it down as fast as you can. And later on, you look at that recipe and you scratch your head and you say, something's just not quite right. Maybe you wrote it down and instead of instead of tablespoons, you put teaspoons. Well, they look at all these manuscripts and they're like, you know, most all of them say tablespoons. I'm just giving the example. But there's this one that says teaspoon. Well, if you have more manuscripts, you can see the tendency of which one was actually the correct one. So those are kind of the three guidelines. You have how close is it in years to the original? How many manuscripts do you have? And then how many variants are in those manuscripts? Now, I just want to tell you how awesome the Bibles that we have, the manuscripts that we have are improving the accuracy of the word of God, of knowing that these words are true. The New Testament blows away any other ancient manuscripts when it comes to those three tests. So, for instance, there are manuscripts that come within about 30 years of when the original was written. You might think, well, 30 years, that's a long time. The next closest piece of ancient literature, which comes from Homer, his Iliad, is over 500 years. That's amazing, isn't it? With the New Testament, we get down to 30 years. So the New Testament is highly accurate with how close it was written. Well, what about the amount of copies that we have? The amount of copies for the New Testament alone, with all the different fragments and stuff we have, over 24,000 manuscript pieces that we have. Well, again, Homer is the closest type of thing. I wrote it down. I can't remember off the top of my head. But Homer, he's got seven. New Testament has 24,000. No other ancient manuscripts come close to the New Testament in those scientific reliability things to say, you know what? We have a very accurate manuscript account, manuscript evidence for how accurate it is. So the question isn't whether Jesus said these things. It's that he said those things. The only question is then, is what he said true? 
that he is the son of God, that he is the only way. That's the only question. But then how did we get to these English Bibles? That's our question for this morning and uh, in this in this conversation. So we have the originals and then we had the manuscripts, but the manuscripts, remember what they're being copied. They weren't written in English. The originals were written in Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic. And so at some point, somebody had to come along and look at the manuscripts in those languages and say, I want to turn it into English. And this is where we get into our conversation about the King James Bible, because some people have said, well, King James was the first. It wasn't the first. In fact, it was based on another one called the Bishop's Bible, and it wasn't the first. The very first English Bible was written by a guy named John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe uh, went along and he didn't actually translate it from the original Greek and Hebrew. He translated it from the Latin. And um, and so then along later came another guy named William Tyndale, and he translated it from the Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic. And 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 that all happened before the King James even came. So it wasn't the first. And then when the King James came, it was a very good translation. It's a good translation. And and King James, when he did it, what he was, was the head of the Church of England. And so what he wanted was a very good translation of an English Bible. And so they based it on the bishop's Bible and they had all these scholars come in and they had very rigid rules about how you would translate this thing because they wanted to do a really good job. And so they translated this Bible and as a result of King James getting it and him being the head of the Church of England, it was authorized by King James and therefore given the authorized King James Version. And that's the only reason why it's called authorized is because of King James. And so it wasn't the first, and its authorization comes from King James, not necessarily from God. So I just want to kind of set those things straight. So the question is, well, why are we using the ESV? Or what about the NIV? And what about the NASB? There's all these other ones. And the reason is this. The King James Bible was written in, translated in 1611. There have actually been updates to the King James Bible to help it with with different discoveries that have happened with manuscripts and these sorts of things. So even the King James itself has been trying to improve. Nowadays, when we are looking at things and we're trying to get back to the original, we're trying to get back to the truth of what actually happened. So let me give you an example. In sports, things are happening so fast and the official makes the call about what happened. And the action happened and a call was made. But now they've introduced something called instant replay. Well, when instant replay came out and they would show you replays, you could look at the TV screen and the officials would go back to that thing and they would look at what the original thing that happened was, right? But when they first introduced it, they were doing it on what's called standard definition video. And if you have one of those old TVs still, it's not high definition, it's standard definition. It's good because you're seeing what's happening. But if you're looking at something minute and something that's happening really fast, those TVs are a little too blurry sometimes, aren't they? It's good. You're seeing it, but you want it more accuracy. And so now what they have are high definition televisions. And now it's even going to 4K televisions that are even clearer and crisper and have more frames per second. And the reason it's getting more detailed and they're using it is because they're trying to get back to the original and what the real truth was. And so what's happening now in Bible translations is they're working off the good traditions of the King James Bible, the Revised Version Bible, and these sorts of things. What they're doing is they're getting a more accurate, more precise translation 
because they're looking at maybe more manuscripts that have been made available or the best manuscript evidence that they have and getting a better view of what the original was. And that's the goal. The goal is to see exactly what Peter was writing. What was he writing? So I bring that up for this reason. When we're in this verse, in this chapter, when it says that by your obedience to the truth, and some of you has, it says through the spirit, the word through the spirit is not in the most reliable early manuscripts. It was added later by somebody else, a scribe. It doesn't disrupt the theology of it. You can find that evidence other places where the Holy Spirit is involved in causing us to come to the truth. It's just that in the truth of this word, in this accuracy, it wasn't in the most original and reliable manuscripts. And so I bring that all up to say that, you know what? If you use a King James Version, I'm fine with that. It is a good translation. We've been given a gift to have something like that. And oftentimes when I'm preparing a sermon, I look at the King James Version and I come over here and I look at the New American Standard Version. I grew up on the NIV, the New International Version. I look at all those because I'm I'm trying to get the best understanding and look at things to get back to the original. And now we have more updated language with some of these things because it's not only going from the original Greek, but it's got to hit the ears of current English speakers. Raise your hand if this month you've used the word beseech. Okay, it's not a common thing. And so part of the translation is trying to update into current language. That's why some people have the the new King James Version. It's built on the same translation uh, models, but it's speaking in more current times. And so I'm just giving this all all about this is because uh, uh, sometimes we can even get to our translations and get religious about it. And that can be dangerous. Do you know there's actually a word for being too religious about the King James Version Bible? It's called avolatry. Authorized version and idolatry shoved together. And the reality is you could do that for the ESV. You could do it for the NIV. But you know what? We're not to be committed so committed to versions that we are idolatrous about those things. We are to be committed to the word of God. What was God saying to Peter? What did he want to say to him to to then give to the people of the Christians who are being tortured? They weren't concerned so much with the translations like I'm going to die for that translation, Peter. They're like the precious blood of Jesus. That's what I need to know. What about this word of God? What is he saying about the word of God? It is so important that I need to know that. So it's not an argument about going to the death for a translation. It is what was God saying through Peter to the early church that we could take for us now and be so firm in what God has said that we adore him. That's what it's about. And so as we come back to this, it says that God has given us this truth and we've responded and that's caused this thing that's supposed to well up in us, this brotherly love that we have one another. Back into the scripture again, in verse 23, it says this. It says, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So This is that you've been born again, that God did that work. And how did he do that? He did that by placing the seed of the word of God in you. He gives some description here. It's not imperishable. Excuse me. It is imperishable. It's not perishable. So perishable seed is anything that would be planted. And even though it grow, it would then die. Um, It kind of has a in the description here. It's talking about born again. All of us at some point have have. Physically and through the chemistry of bodies and all that goes on there 
had a seed that brought us into being. Okay, now you as the person who was born had nothing to do with that. How many of you chose to be conceived? Nobody would raise their hands. Okay, something else went on. Something else was occurring to cause that to happen. Same thing when you're born again. God caused something to happen. He planted the seed and then caused that to grow. You've been born again. And it says here by that word of God that's been put in you. He was at work. Other scriptures talk about how the Holy Spirit's involved in getting that word of God to come and do its work of regeneration and renewal in you. In the church, he is using it to wash us clean. It says in Ephesians chapter five, this is God's work. And it's this this imperishable seed that's being planted, not perishable. And it's not some fantasy. It's real that we might live. He goes on and says this in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So he goes on to describe this word, this thing that has occurred in you when he planted that word in you. If that is God's word that has brought you into life, it will not perish. It lives, he says. It abides, he says. And those are some pretty incredible words that he used. If you think of what's alive, there's things that appear alive. They're not alive. Uh, the other day, our kids and our, uh, us, we were watching this, uh, this um, nature show and they were going all over showing different things. And it was focusing on islands. And it was showing how some of them are formed from volcanoes. And there was these shots of, of liquid rock coming out of the ground. We know it as lava. And that stuff just looked alive with, with a glow and with movement. It was just incredible. Guess what? Not alive. It's not even alive. There's other things that, that have life. Grass, it says, trees, and for a while they're there, but they don't abide. And so these things together to live and to abide, this is something special that the word of God does in people. Otherwise, it's just flesh. It's just something that would perish and go away. But in fact, he's trying to do something eternal in you. He's trying to give you his life. He's trying to call you into eternity to be with him and with him forever. He goes on at the end here and says this. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. At some point, if you are a believer. There was a person or a circumstance or a place or you sitting with your King James Bible or your ESV. But the word of God was preached to you. The good news, the gospel of what God has done for you, that he looked at somebody who has been completely reckless and rebellious and wicked in life. And maybe you had tried your religious ways to impress God. He said, that's not doing it. You had you had gone your own way like a stray sheep and that didn't work either. And you were desperate and he showed you that truth of how desperate and wicked and pitiful you were. And then on the flip side of that truth, he also showed you how good he is. And he's the only way, the only truth, the only life in the story of Jesus coming to earth, dying on that cross, coming back through the resurrection and then going and instilling and planting that that news. Of dying in your place. Of his willingness to forgive you of all your sins, to wash you clean and to bring you into his kingdom and into his family. You were preached That good news, whether you read it or heard it, it came to you. 
and in obedience to that truth. Yes, through the work of the Holy Spirit, too. It was preached to you and you lived for the first time. Because there is appearance among humanity that if you're living and breathing and you're you're walking around that you're alive. But the gospel actually says that if you're walking and breathing, but do not have Jesus, you are dead. And at some point, the good news, the gospel of Jesus came and was preached to you and you took that truth and you obeyed it and trusted him. And he took you from being a dead, perishing, unabiding person into being one who was alive. One who experienced and knew and was living in the love of God. And as a result of that love that's now coming, started in the word, continuing in the word, you are now living that out with this brotherly affection that's sincere for one another. And that's the fruit of that happening in your life. And it's awesome. Now, it's true. This word of God can be used wrongly. Uh, Many a sermon have been. This has been used wrongly. Many times people have just said, well, if I just pound it and pound it and pound it and read it every day, I'll be approved. In fact, Jesus, even with the Pharisees, he nailed them on this. He said this. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice You have never heard his form. You have never seen and you do not have this word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. See, even the Pharisees, they kept reading the scriptures. They had this word of God, but they ignored the fact that it was speaking the truth about Jesus. They were reading it for their religiousness. And he says, that's not going to earn you anything. I was talking to somebody recently. They said, they said, I know I need to read the word of God. I know the Lord wants to use me. But I feel like sometimes when I feel like I have to do it every day, that I'm checking it off a list. That it's a duty. And I'm not advising you to do what feels dutiful. But I am advising us. To say, Lord, I'm going to commit to reading your word. I'm going to commit to putting my life before it. I don't understand it all, but would you speak to me in that? Because Jesus said this to the Pharisees. You're not abiding in his word. His word's not abiding in you. The hope is that it would abide in you. The hope is that it wouldn't be dutiful. How many of you with your, your spouse are saying, you know what? The only reason I talk to them is out of duty. I'm married to them. That's the only reason I talk to my spouse every day. That's not a good reason, but you know what? It's still good for you to talk to that spouse every day. It's still good to listen to them every day, to have that conversation because you're abiding with them. In the same way, the word of God wants to abide with you, wants to be part of you, wants to continue to lead you, show you what life is, encourage you when you feel like you're being persecuted, you're in that hard spot. But it comes to that place of just saying, Lord, show me what Peter was writing. Show me what John was writing. Show me what Isaiah was writing. In fact, Isaiah was quoted out of there. He was quoted in that passage. What's interesting about that passage is this. When he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, he quotes from verse 6 and verse 8. And Peter left out verse 7. So I went over to Isaiah. I was like, why did he leave out verse 7? Let me tell you what verse 7 says. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. 
The reality is this. We can have the Word of God come and plant the imperishable, everlasting, abiding, powerful Word of God and cause us to live. For this said in verse 7, that all people are grass and that the breath of the Lord, if he's, that's not going to be used to lift you and fill you with life and adoration for him, then it will destroy you. It will. And that's why in the book of Revelation, it says the word of God, Jesus himself will come and destroy his enemies. In the scripture, it says that when Jesus comes, when he destroys his enemies, particularly the Antichrist, that he will destroy him with the breath of his mouth, with the word of God, that he is going to come and destroy his enemies. So, friends, please, if you are going to come to the word of God, come to it while there's still a chance to have life and have it come and give you what is good. Respond to that truth and live. Don't wait for the day when out of our religion and the ways of the world that we would come and sit before Jesus and said, I tried. And he said, yes, but now you perish. Amen. Now is the time to really take it and soak it in. And I, I want to give you just a picture of what it means to, to really love the word of God. This week I, I went and I, I actually studied at McDonald's for a little while and I saw a couple of our uh, friends here from church and it was just good to see him. And while I was sitting there at one point, I was I was studying and and um, this this worker at McDonald's, she came out and, you know, she's doing her work of sweeping and 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 wiping down tables. And, you know, that just would get monotonous after a while. And she was kind of doing her thing. And finally she came over and she stood next to my table. She said. She said, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading out of first Peter. I'm, I'm reading about how uh, the word of God is just alive and good. And at that point, she had her. Her broom and she was just kind of almost like dancing with it while she looked at my Bible and her, her face just began to glow. And she said, oh, the Bible, she says. It's just the best. And she went back to sweeping. But this time it was like she was dancing and you could just tell that there was something that the Lord had reminded her of how sweet he is, how good he's been to speak into her life and a job that would be monotonous now and maybe even a persecution at times now became one where it's like, I'm just going to go live in the abiding and living word of God and let it just speak to me and give me joy. And we didn't talk the rest of the time, but I could just watch her and she was just you could just tell the Lord had lifted her up. That's what the word of God is. It is alive, living and active. And it wishes to do a work in you that nothing else can do. Love it. Read it. Don't get religious over it. But know that God so wants you. So wants you to respond to it. That At this moment, there's really nothing else that we could do except when we close our Bibles and say, amen, that we would go, Lord, here I am. And so they we're just we're not going to close in a song. I don't want to get distracted from what he's done through the word of God. I just want there to be a, a, a heart commitment from we who are believers to say, Lord. Would you teach me your word? And I don't know whether you're a beginner. I don't know whether you've studied and know more of the Bible and memorized more than me. But maybe the Lord is just encouraging you to go and spend more time in your Bible every day or or maybe talk with your spouse about the Bible every day or or, or, or maybe go talk to somebody else about Jesus. And use the Bible. Maybe he's encouraging you. And I just want to kind of have that opportunity for us to respond to the Lord. Because as we do that, that too is good.
Because as we've been witnessing what is precious in our faith, in the blood of Jesus and the word of God, you know what is precious to God? The times when Jesus was amazed the most was when somebody responded in faith. And that's precious to him. So at this time, let's let's just bow our heads and I'm going to pray to close here. But if you would respond to the word of God, maybe in your heart, you just say, Lord, just give me a love for your word. Give my family a love for your word. And let's go and just entrust this word to our lives. Lord, we just come. At this moment, and we want to thank you. Lord, it's miraculous that we in this country could so freely open our Bibles and obviously the freedom that we have with with nobody persecuting us, but just all the technology and all the translation and the science that has gone into translations and all the people that have copied the manuscripts and all the people that you had to write the scriptures that all came, Lord, as a, a, a desire of you for us to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And that scripture said that when we heard the good word that was preached to us, we believed. And we responded. And we felt your love and we felt your forgiveness and we felt your peace and joy and faith. And so, Father, today we ask that you would cause that to be fresh in us again, that we would not get bogged down with our religiousness, even about reading the Bible. Rather, we would see it again as a great conversation you're trying to have with us to speak into our lives with authority, to give us a living word that is powerful. And so, Lord, would you help us to love your word? You've said in your scripture that you desire people who are humble and contrite and who tremble at your word. And so, Lord, would you cause us to tremble? Tremble out of love, tremble out of respect. Tremble out of a desire for you and and how awesome and holy it is to have you, God, speaking to us. It is a miracle. Lord, help us to understand. Give us knowledge. And Lord, we pray also that you would give us a desire then to take this word and to go preach it, not to smack people over the heads with Bibles. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to convey the good news of the gospel through the word to others. Lord, we pray for those maybe even here today who have not responded in obedience to the truth. Lord, today I pray that they would see you as that fireman who's in their house. And you want to rescue them. I, t- I pray today, Lord, that you would rescue them, that they would respond to the truth that they've heard, how good you've been. And Lord, for many in our lives that are in need of hearing this gospel and responding in faith, Lord, today, right now, we, we see their faces. We, 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 we have their names on our lips and we just pray them to you and ask that you would bring them to faith through the gospel. We give you thanks because you've been so good to us. Lord, help us to cherish this precious word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.